In the space of nine months in the year 1692, 14 women and five men were executed in the colony of Massachusetts for the crime of witchcraft. The Salem Witch Trials, as the event has become known, is an important part of the narrative of the founding of America, highlighting both the religious fervor and the desperate lives of the Puritans in New England. My guest today has just brought the main figures of this tale to life in a book that offers both a history and a cautionary tale. Welcome to this week's All Together, the podcast dedicated to exploring ethics, religion, and spiritual practice in daily life. My name is Paul Rauschenbusch, and I'm the executive editor of Global Spirituality and Religion at the Huffington Post and the host of All Together. You can download All Together on iTunes or Stitcher. My guest today is the Pulitzer Prize-winning author, Stacy Schiff. Ms. Schiff has written several critically acclaimed biographies, including on Vera, Mrs. Vladimir Nabokov, Benjamin Franklin, and Cleopatra. Her most recent book is titled The Witches, Salem, 1692. Far from the kitsch and myth that surrounds Salem today, Stacey Schiff brings back the real spirit of fear and faith that drove the witch trials and offers us some important lessons on what we can learn for faith in our time. Stacey Schiff, welcome to All Together. Thank you. So set the stage for us. This book is so vivid, but what really comes to life is this time and this place in American history. Um, And I was just wondering, can you just start our conversation about the book, um, about like where they were and what that existence was like? You know, one of the things things that enchanted me initially is that we, we do seem to have this blindness about 1692. We think, the, you know, the pilgrims arrived, and there was Plymouth Rock, and then Paul Revere rode off directly from there. So 1692 and the years in between those two events are largely lost in the shuffle. But at this point, what you have are a bunch of sparsely settled um, towns, this is from the colony of Massachusetts in any case, um, throughout basically what we consider now northern New England, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Maine, um, where there are no newspapers, which was a surprise to me when I started working on this. No newspapers, a lot of sermons, which is the primary means of communication. Everyone, nearly everyone is a Puritan, although not everyone goes to meeting. Um, a pretty much farm-based existence. And in 1692, what you also have, which is somewhat interesting and which will play a role in what is about to happen, is you have a colony essentially untethered from the mother country. They have no official government charter. They have no established government at this point. They had overthrown their royal governor three years earlier, and so in 1692, um, they are still really without an established, without established authorities, which has something to do with what's going to happen when in early 1692, end of January, early February, um, a couple of young girls begin to show um, various signs of what is understood to be witchcraft. They twitch, they convulse, they speak out in, in meeting, they hide in small corners, they fly across rooms, they contort in various ways, and are understood to be bewitched. One of the things that I found so gripping was what you talk about, the darkness. And we think about in today's world, it's like we got we got highways, we got lampposts, we, you know, we basically go from light to light, and it's not a big deal. But in those days, 
it was a very dark existence. I mean, meaning like, you know, the night was an oppressive sort of um, almost a character in the in this uh, in setting this stage. I'm so glad you said that, Paul, because it, I worked hard to make that clear. I, we don't experience darkness the way an early modern American would have experienced darkness. I mean, you can tell from the court testimony, and not only the witchcraft testimony, but also just the day-to-day court testimony, how terrified these people were in the pitch black. I mean, we're talking black of the kind where you can be disoriented in your own field at night and not know where your house is. Um, And that sense that, you know, that we all know that a smudge on the wall or a creek in the corner can suddenly mutate into a ferocious beast is obviously enhanced by the fact that you just can't see. Right. Well, you know, I, I think about my own, like, very, very lit existence. And when I'm in a dark place, like the back of my neck, um, and, you know, it starts to prickle, and I'm, like, very hyper aware of what's around me, and everything all of a sudden seems ominous. And it just, it just seemed like a major factor in kind of this, this openness to, um, you know, malfeasance. Well, you know, you would not have made a very good 17th century New Englander. That is perfectly clear. I have other very powerful attributes. I'm sure there would have been a way I could have made it, Stacy. Thank you. I'm sure of that. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because all stories come in the dark. And so you can see, you know, it's almost as if everyone's huddled around the campfire here. You can see how the combination of um, the deep religious fervor and the biblical imagery and the really brutal dark, and the long months indoors, I might add, over the course of a winter, could add up to um, a certain kind of, if not hallucinating, then at least deep-seated imagining. Plus, witchcraft was very much in the minds of the people. This was not something like kind of an abstract, you know, third-tier concern. This was in the legal code that they set up. I mean, it was really like part of like what was the organizing factor was witchcraft. Yes. I mean, it's very important to say, and I should have said at the outset, that witchcraft was not this kind of freaky, strange concept that it is to us. I mean, when they established a legal code in Massachusetts, um, the first capital crime um, is idolatry and the second is witchcraft. It is very much on everyone's minds. Um, and the idea in the, the 1641 body of laws basically says, if you consult with a with a familiar spirit or if you're a witch, you shall be put to death. This is definitely something everyone fears. There's been a huge witch, witchcraft tradition um, in, in the England from which most of these settlers have come. And there have been a number of witchcraft cases in Massachusetts. Until, until 1692, there had been 100-ish cases of witchcraft, the difference being, or of accused witches, the difference being that there had been very few prosecutions. What's different in 1692 is the intensity of the episode and um, the number of executions, which was more unparalleled. We're kind of functioning in an era when there's kind of an effort among um, many women-centered religious traditions to recapture a powerful kind of women's-based um, divine spirituality that claims a history in um, in Europe and uh, and you know so kind of a crone or um, nature worshiping, but. But it, when in your in in this in this era, it's not like the witches are defined purely as they might be by Christian antagonists. 
I mean, it's not like uh, you know, it's not like let's let's involve you know Wiccans in the in the interfaith movement. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, this is this is really about you know a de- definition which is other, which is you know, in some ways mingled with um, satanic ideas. Can you talk a little bit about what they meant by witches? Yes, and you went exactly where I was going, which is that I should have specified that witches, as they define them, were were religious. It was a religious kind of heresy. You were a witch was a person in league with the devil. You were a diabolical confederate if you were a witch. It wasn't you weren't a Wiccan. You weren't Elizabeth Montgomery. You weren't Professor McGonagall. <laughs> you were in league with the devil, and you worked your witchcraft um, with your diabolical accomplices, who were usually animals. Which is why in the Salem testimony there are so many black cats and bewitched pigs and toads and hogs and things. Um, and you were essentially there. You were, your your goal was not actually to afflict someone physically, although you did do that in the process of doing what you were doing, but your goal was to reach their soul and was to basically get them to sign a diabolical pact with the devil. And this becomes very, a pact with the devil, this becomes very um, vivid in, in the Salem testimony in a way it has never become before in Massachusetts in that a, an entire satanic conspiracy turns out after a number of confessions to be afoot. And what begins with just a couple of girls saying that witches have attacked them um, turns into this widespread subversive plot against the, the church and the state um, who are all being run by this, by this group of, of, of satanic confederates. What was interesting to me was the time. Like, it's one year from kind of January to November that such incredible things happen. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think that's one of our big misconceptions is that we, we think this took a while. It's actually nine months, really, from beginning of um, first afflictions or first understanding that this is actually witchcraft on the first diagnosis to the, sh- the trials being shut down. But essentially you have late January, early February, the first girls begin to be afflicted, um, that will soon spread by March. There are a number of adult women who are also complaining that they are being attacked by witches. Um, and I should say, by the way, that very soon the people who are accused of witchcraft are not only women, they are also men. So the first three accused um, witches are women and the obvious kind of characters whom you would accuse. And then it begins to branch out to full church members and to men. And there's, there's no immunity here. I mean, gender, church membership, age, fortune, all kinds of people get accused. Rich yeah, merchants yeah, are accused. Yeah, that, that was what was surprising me. People with, who you would think had power, and yet, in, in, in fact, this, this other kind of power almost was, I mean, we'll get into, like, what was going on, but it used to bring them down. Right, but to answer your question, so the, the first, and then, and then, of course, you can't have any trials because you have no real government in place, so the trials themselves don't begin until midsummer, at which point you have all, you, the jails of Essex County are already bulging with accused witches because they haven't figured out any way to get these people through any kind of judicial system. Um, the trials will begin midsummer. the hangings will begin late summer, there are four sets of hangings, and by the time the fall rolls around, for various reasons, it has become clear that things have got out of hand, or the basis for these convictions is perhaps not sound, or the judges have overreacted, or perhaps everybody's just bought a tremendous bill of goods, and the trials are shut down, and that's October by the time that happens. So it's really very, very quick. From It's like a flash flood kind of thing from beginning to end. So who were these girls? Uh, who were the 
you know, I don't know, maybe nine. How many girls were there? And they were young. They were really young. Yeah, they're really young. It's 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 there's a core group of accusers, really. Um, and you know what's interesting about them is that they, some of them, clearly, entirely believe their testimony. Um, some of them are obviously experiencing physical symptoms that they couldn't have faked. I mean, they're they're convulsing in a way that had to be real. And some of them are doing things which were kind of hard to do without someone else helping you, like some of them are appearing in court with their hands tied together, which is a little bit difficult to pull off by yourself. Um, and many of them are telling the same story, which would imply that, especially since it's word for word, they have perhaps colluded in some way. But the youngest of them is sort of 11 or 12, and that would have been the niece of the minister in whose house the witchcraft initially breaks out. And the eldest of them are sort of 20 and 21. It's a core group of about eight girls, depending on how you count. Many of them, most of them are not living with their biological fathers, which is sort of interesting. Many of them are servants in other people's houses. And many of them have been refugees from Indian attacks or the prior Indian War or have lost relatives to the previous Indian War. So there are many of them um, disenfranchised, obviously, because they're girls in Puritan society, but also sort of doubly so because their families have taken some sort of economic hit or emotional emotional toll. What was interesting also is that these girls, you know, that they were possessed, but then that they also were kind of visited as seers, that they had, through the possession, almost they had powers. Isn't that great? What happens is that at a certain point, um, and particularly Samuel Paris, the minister in whose house all this begins and who's so central to the story, the Salem Village minister, begins to use them for their visionary abilities because they can then walk into a room, these 12-year-old girls, and say who has made the person who's lying sick in bed sick and who, who has basically exercised her witchcraft and cast a spell on this particular person. And that's a really sort of medieval practice, which just gets adopted here to the point where people start to bring ailing relatives to the girls so that they can diagnose what ails them with their visionary powers. It's really kind of extraordinary, but they are completely running the show. Which is so interesting about, like, the, uh, you know, the the allure of power and, you know, the, you know, the exercise of it. I mean, I, I just think that that is, is such an, you know, fascinating element of this whole story. But it gets to another couple characters, um, Cotton and Increase Mather, um, who offer almost this kind of dual portrait of a religious response to such an outbreak because they offer very different responses and they are father and son. Can you say a little bit about who they are and how they enter into the scene? Well, they're essentially the two most. Increase Mather is the most distinguished, most eminent, most published minister in New England. Um, Although he's about to be overtaken by Cotton Mather, who I think in the two years prior to 1692 has published 22 books. I mean, he's the most most about to be the most prolific man, I think, ever in America. Does it make you feel like a little bit of a slouch, Stacey? I think it should make Joyce Carol Oates feel like it. <laughs> and also, you know, P.S., he hand-wrote it all, which is more than any of the rest of us can say. You know, some of it's very, very good, if you like the sky, if you like Puritan sermons. <laughs> and you must have read them. I mean, this you are up on your Puritan sermons. I really did. And I, and I, now, you know, the good news is you don't have to, so. <laughs> Sorry for the digression, but I would like to hear you give a couple Puritan sermons. I don't think there are several things about me that make me ill-suited to do that. <laughs> the interesting thing with the Mathers is that 
there again, you have this, this adolescent theme, which is to me so much at the heart of the book at play, because you have a younger minister who is clearly under the thumb of his domineering and extremely eminent father. And you have a father who, Increase Mather didn't immediately invite Cotton Mather into the pulpit with him at, at his at his church, you know, and there's a reason for that. I mean, there's a certain there's a certain hesitation on both men's parts, one toward the other, but they're very, very close, and they're obviously at the very heart of at the center of of this of this case. Increase Mather tends to view things a little more skeptically than does his son, and is almost from the beginning very hesitant toward prosecution. Cotton Mather is much more rejoicing in the fact that if this witchcraft is actually touching down in Massachusetts Bay, the Massachusetts Bay has been chosen um, to prove its virtue. The, the devil has touched down here because of the very piety of the, of the Puritans, and this is a sort of badge of honor that he has visited them here. And, and essentially the two men will go their separate ways while pretending to be on the same page. Basically, Cotton Mather will say that he made a case for prosecuting the guilty, and then his father makes a case for protecting the innocent, isn't that exactly the same thing? Which, of course, it isn't. But they'll be falling all over themselves to pretend that they are in lockstep because it's very important through these trials um, for the authorities to seem anyway as if they are, as if there is no divisiveness whatsoever, especially given the political unrest of the prior years. And one of the things you say about ultimately the end of the trials, which, which ultimately end in, in people being let go. You know, ultimately, there are four sets of hangings. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, what, 20 people die? 20, 19 people hang and one person is crushed under stones. Not something you really want to have to talk about, but there you have it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's the person who doesn't, who refuses to plead whether he's guilty or innocent. And so he's crushed under stones. Exactly. Well, that's one way to do it. But, uh, you know, uh, as an aside, I, one of the, there was one very interesting character who, who, you know, the, the test was, could you possibly say the Lord's Prayer? And, of course, no witch could do that, but then one does, and he's still killed. It's like, damned if you do, damned if you don't. But he's killed, he, he, it's too late by the time he says it properly. What's really interesting to me is that was, that was indeed a time-honored test. You know, it was like dunking a witch. Can you say the Lord's Prayer? And what's really interesting, and it tells you something about what stress these people were under before the authorities, no one seems to be able to say it. Everyone stumbles over the Lord's Prayer, oh, and it just tells you how incredibly nervous they would have been in, the, in those hearings and in those courtrooms um, in front of the most spectacular and well-dressed men they'd ever met in their lives. They just can't even cough up the Lord's Prayer. You write, when the spell broke, the torrent of recrimination swept away a rich layer of faith. So was this, you know, kind of devastating for the Church? It is a little bit devastating for the Church. Um, in two ways. First of all, just on a very micro level, these people have to go back to listening to ministers who have been standing in courts accusing people of witchcraft minister again. So there's a little bit, something we can relate to, of a distrust of authority here. Yeah. I mean, the system has failed, and they have prosecuted people who were innocent. You know, people have indeed come out of jail, as you mentioned. People are freed from jail, and they've been subject to unendurable pressures. And those by the most enlightened men in the community. So there's a sort of wholesale, you know, skepticism here about who's in charge. And it, by definition, has tainted the whole idea of confession, which is so much at the heart of the Puritan exercise. So people have falsely confessed. People have confessed to crimes they never committed. They have confessed to conspiracies in which they were, which didn't exist, in which they had no part. It really does eat away at the uh, the central tenet of 
uh, of a Puritan confession. Um, and it does open the door to religious toleration, therefore, which was meant to have happened earlier anyway, politically, but it makes that a lot easier when the Puritan authorities have somewhat disgraced themselves. Is part of this, in writing it, did you sense a morality play for today? Is there any parallel that you saw or lessons? You know, it was really important to me to make clear that these people are, while they are indeed early modern Americans and they believe in things we don't believe in, like witchcraft, they are not unlike us. And the mob mentality, the ability to elicit a false confession, the suggestibility, um, the, you know, what we do on the Internet in our virtual lives where we are happy to malign and to pass on false information, there were just so many parallels that, yes, I felt a tremendous camaraderie with them and a sense that we shouldn't judge them as being strange, benighted people living in a parallel universe, that we, too, can manage these kinds of mishaps. I mean, if you look at the whole child abuse, you know, California scandal, you see a fairly modern parallel to this to this whole episode. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. the child abuse scandals were kids, daycare workers, remember, were accused by the children in their care of having abused them. And any number of people falsely confess, and any number of people go to jail. And it's that same kind of epidemic of confession that you had here with Salem, and again, taking the you know the word of one very disenfranchised group against the authorities. So, one of the things that's so admirable about the way you write about them is this empathy, um, and yet they did such horrible things to one another. Uh, I just find that um, you know I'm 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 trying to sense how, especially as a religious person myself, you know, what would you hope that, you know, especially with the Cotton Mather and Increase Mather, what would you hope that religious people would take away from this? Well, you know, I had such empathy even for them writing, because they too think they're on the higher, everyone thinks he's doing the right thing here. And that's what's astonishing, is that Everyone has his reasons, but everyone also thinks he's on the moral high ground, with the possible exception of a few people. Um, and obviously the heroes turn out to be people we didn't think they were going to be. But I, I guess the two things were um, the idea that there, the idea of mercy gets lost here. Um, there's such an enormous emphasis on solving this puzzle and on prosecuting the guilty and of cleaning this up before it can get any more out of hand that mercy kind of goes missing. And I guess that's the piece, um, that, that, that piece and the, and the dogma piece, the idea that other ministers, that more liberal ministers will introduce later in the summer, that perhaps these ideas are not as ironclad and these things are not as possible to prove as Cotton Mather anyway seems to think. Um, and that maybe we need to question our answers a little bit more thoroughly than we've done. And that does not come easily uh, to a Puritan, or any of us for that matter. Stacey Schiff, thank you so much for joining me on All Together. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for joining me on this week's All Together. Hopefully, we've learned something about how religious passions can be misplaced and the need to listen, learn, and ultimately feel mercy towards our neighbors. Until next time, be well. This segment of HuffPost Altogether was produced by Caitlin Boguki, sound engineered by Brad Shannon, and edited by Nick Offenberg.